Hi, and welcome back to the Be A Better Ally podcast. On today, we have remarkable guest, Victoria Thompson. Um, In the show notes, you will find links to her work as well as the link to follow her on Twitter. If you are not following her on Twitter, what are you doing? Also, if you are contemplating an upcoming educational experience, NCCE is right around the corner and there are so many amazing educators presenting at that virtual event, Victoria Thompson being one of them. Uh, She is often on webinars, on other podcasts. So I would say if this is the first time that you are meeting Victoria Thompson, welcome to someone who is about to inspire you. Uh, and then go and dig around and, and find all, all of the other spaces that she has so generously shared her wisdom, insight, and ideas. So hi, everybody. I'm Victoria Thompson, and I'm really excited to be here today. I am a STEM integration transformation coach. I just call myself a STEM coach uh, for schools in Washington State. And for what's coming up this month, for me for March. Um, I'm presenting at NCCE, which is the Northwestern Council for Computer Education. I have two presentations coming up with them on March 18th. I will be presenting at the Neotech Conference for Educational Technology, and my session is Equity in Educational Technology. I have a webinar coming up for ISTE uh, that is going to be happening March 16th, and I am celebrating my wife's clinicals, hopefully being done at the end of this month. So March is a very busy month, but but I'm very excited for it. Uh, I feel like when you are you, Victoria, every month must be a busy <laughs> month. Like for folks who are listening, if you are one of the rare educators who is not following Victoria Thompson, <laughs> of course you should. Um, and if you already are, uh, you know, again, I think your your audience in the Twitter Twitter sphere knows like you've got a lot going on. Mm-hmm. You're just bringing so much wisdom to fellow educators, doing so much work, um, and you just kind of dropped in actually a little nugget of of I think allyship that I wanted to start talking about right off the top of the episode. And and I just love that, you know, you mentioned your wife. And sometimes when I am doing something professional, I mention my wife too. And I I noticed, I think a few weeks back, you talked about your Twitter profile photo and it's a photo of of you and your wife, right? And that I think for uh, for some folks, they might think, well, Oh, so what? You know, it's a picture of you and your spouse. What's the big deal? Um, but I do think for queer educators, it is a very big deal um, <laughs> still in 2021. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about the assumptions that people have made about that photo uh, and maybe what that tells us about heteronormativity in schools? Mm-hmm. And again, just why um, it's great to see you pointing out this is me and my wife and just talk a little bit more about um yeah, what, what's going on there and yeah. and how you kind of use that as another space to have like a little mini micro webinar, if you will. So honestly, a lot of the communication I get from my profile picture has been pretty benign. And by benign, like if I get like a message or if folks are reaching out, it's typically in support, which I think speaks volumes about just the different types of communities that are on social media folks who might be looking for queer educators to follow, that way they can learn a little bit more or just kind of you know make their space a little bit more inclusive. What I find resistance with is people who are just, I think, ignorant and don't believe it. Um, I don't think that my wife and I look alike at all. 
I mean, and you've seen pictures of her. I don't think that we look alike, but because we're two black women, we get the, oh, are you sisters? Or, oh, well, how did you meet? Or, well, you must be cousins. Like they just don't believe that two women can be like together romantically. And that's a little frustrating because then I have to sit with myself and think, okay, do I want to spend energy on this? Mm -hmm. You know, do I want to correct it? And when I say, do I want to, I mean, I always want to, but I kind of have to be in a space where I have to figure out whether or not the person is inquiring as a good faith argument because they are just genuinely curious and want to find out more about me and my wife and what we do, or if they're trying to be a jerk about it. And that's a judgment call that I feel like I have to make whenever that kind of conversation comes up. And, you know, when I give talks and when I talk about my wife and all that stuff, some of the, you know, largest pieces of, I feel praise I get is just, oh, you speak so freely about your wife. Like I've never heard somebody do that before. And I mean, on social media, I'm always talking about her and our latest saga. Not that we have like fights or anything like that, but I'm trying so hard to get her to flatten the boxes before they go into the recycling bin. And this has been like a year long saga. So you know, like we'll post out, we'll be like, oh, she flattened a box today. Isn't that cool? Um, but I did have folks in my mentions inquiring, well, like, we just want to make sure that you're okay. Like, I, I just want you to let the little things go. I'm like, dude, it's not that serious. <laughs> you know, it's really not that serious. You know, it's just us, but they view it as a, okay, well, you're a gay couple. Let me see how this comes from the straight point of view. And then I have to interject and say, you know, it's, it's just playful right? It's just playful. So when I have pictures of my wife or when I speak about her, I do it the same as a straight couple, right? Or maybe a couple that might be in a bit of a different position, but I feel like it's still kind of getting viewed through that lens. And that's where I struggle. Um, but ways to combat that, of course, is just being open and honest. And you don't have to give your energy to, you know, to anybody that you feel isn't trying to give it to you authentically. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I feel I, you know, so much of what you just said resonates even from the detail. My wife is only two years younger than me. Um, she is half Asian. We look nothing alike. Like she has long black hair mm -hmm. and I still get, I've gotten everything from, are you sisters to the one that was heartbreaking? Cause again, only two year age gap. Are you her mother? Mother. Yep. <laughs> so it's just, it's interesting that that's the paradigm that mm -hmm. people can reach to first. And, you know, I, I do think right. you know, like all you're doing is talking about your family and your relationship the way that any straight person would. Um, and, you know, sometimes people say, oh, that's, a, that's such a political gesture you make. Yes. I've gotten that too, where, oh, it's political. And, and when I was in South Carolina, because I'm new to new-ish to Washington, we've been here for about two and a half, three years now. But when I was in South Carolina, I mean, I was never allowed to have a picture of me and Courtney on my desk and we were just dating at that point. We, we weren't married or anything or even engaged, but the rhetoric that I received was, okay, well, if you're fifth or sixth grade, cause I was, then that might ask questions, right? And then you don't want that from family members and you don't want that from parents. And the vibe I always got was not necessarily, you can't do it because the district doesn't want you to do it. The vibe that I got was, we don't want you to do it because then we have to answer questions as an administrative team. And now that I'm like a quasi administrator now as an instructional coach, I answer questions like all day, every day. And I don't mind answering those questions. So it's a bit mind boggling to me where like I go a million rounds about a paint color for a door, mm -hmm. <laughs> but then like a principal can't just be like, yeah, like she's, she's gay and she's marrying another woman. Um, that was really hard too, because South Carolina is also red state, no union. 
So when I taught, I mean, my principal was pretty great. Same with my assistant principal. I don't think that they would have ousted me for being gay, but that was always something in the back of my mind. Just, okay. So if I were to be my authentic self, what's going to happen? Right. And then couple that with homophobic colleagues, <laughs> you know, students that are just kind of coming of age. You have ones that are kind of being spoon fed what their parents say about being gay and religion and, you know, from lots of different spectrums. But then we also have some who are trying to figure themselves out and they could kind of feel out that I was gay or, you know, that I don't date men. And they were kind of figuring out what that looked like for themselves. But again, it just hurt my heart that I couldn't be 100 percent open and honest with them. You know, and, and there's there's two things there that you say that I think is you know, really important. A, as you were pointing out, like as an educator, your job is handling with questions and, you know, actually enjoying like, hey, this is a place for us to have conversations. And I think if school is not a space where we can have conversations like that, then where is, right? Uh, you know, where where is that place? And just also, you know, what you've said, I think any, any queer educator I've, I've ever spoken to has said the similar thing that at some point in our career, we have worried, could I be fired just for being the person who right. I am. Um, and I mentioned that because uh, we do have a few school leaders who I know li listen to this regularly. Mm -hmm. And I think if you are in leadership, you really do need to know that, you know, if, if you are, if you've got queer members of staff and likely you do, you have to know that, that that's a concern. You know, mm -hmm. um, when Definitely. we say we want you to bring your whole self to work, you have to think about what that right. means. Um, and then just kind of thinking about that too, like I think of this in the same vein, like not, I guess in the same vein, but at least in the same Venn diagram as you know, like anti-racist teaching practices. And then we have like our anti-homophobic practices. And a lot of the work that I'm doing is just kind of shifting from that anti-racism, I hate racism, right? Anti-homophobia, I hate homophobia to unconditionally loving our black and brown and indigenous students. And that also means you unconditionally love, right? Your queer, trans, like anywhere on the spectrum. Students as well as your staff too. Hating hate is not the same as unconditional love. And if you're an administrator listening, cause I'm again in this kind of like quasi admin role, that's something that I'm working on a lot with my staff. You know, they're trying to be their authentic selves. And I think that they do a phenomenal job, but then what does that look like when we really show up for kids? You know, it might be a group like SOAR, it might be a, you know, allyship group, even virtually we can still do it, but just what does unconditional love look like? Because that's how you retain staff, number one. Um, that's also how you retain students and families and communities. And then on top of that too, that's how you have authentic discussion and conversation because people aren't going to be real with you if they feel like you're not being real with them. So what does love look like? And then how can we insert love into every conversation that we have? Yeah, gosh, you know, and again, if we can't do it at schools, right, then where are we going to do it? Where are we, we gonna going be able to, to do, do it? it? Um, you know, I think you have one of the coolest job titles I've, I've ever <laughs> heard. Uh, and I realize, you know, I, I think if you are working in STEM, maybe there is sort of almost like this cloud around you that kind of is just, you must be innovative. Like that is who you must be. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if, um, you know, that being part of your background, has that helped you or your, your kind of like innovation superpowers, has that been helpful for you in terms of thinking or brainstorming? Or, you know, I, I really like how you just phrase, this is about unconditional love, just 
that new framing around what it is going to mean for schools to be able to become more uh, LGBTQ plus inclusive moving forward? Uh, mm-hmm. Because I would say, you know, are things getting better? Yes. Do we still have a lot of work to do? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. I don't even know where to begin. Well, usually when I go to meetings that are STEM specific or tech specific, I'm usually the only one that looks like me. And they kind of look at me not as, you know, like discounting my credentials. I have had a couple of moments where that happened and I was able to set that straight extremely quickly. Um, But, you know, with my solutions and my collaborative style, it's just very different from the traditional STEM model where I feel like a lot of the STEMinists is what I call them. You know, a lot of their methods are very procedural, you know, procedural. They're collaborative on a surface level but we don't really get down to like the meat and the reasoning behind it and the reasons why. So to give like a very specific example um, that I was working with with a group not too long ago, just kind of talking about different types of programs for gifted, academic, AP, you know, like Votech, all these different things. And folks understandably have concerns about tracking because typically it's black, brown, indigenous, right? Latinx students that will end up in the Votech program. And then it's typically the white and the Asian students that will end up in like the AP or the honors. My pushback on that, not that I don't believe it because I've seen it, right? Like we've, I think we've all seen it a million times, but that the real change is not necessarily from the programs themselves. It's changing the implicit bias of the teacher that looks at a Latinx student and says, you deserve to be in VOTEC or that looks at an Asian student and says, okay, well, they're Asian, then they should be in AP, right? So it's not that these programs are perfect, but it's twofold, right? We need to make sure that we have programs for our students that are, you know, kind of mold them into what they want to be when they get older, regardless of whether that's academic or honors or AP or whatever. But we also need to make sure that students and students, one, don't feel some type of way because of who they are and how they show up. Um, But then number two, how teachers, of course, look at students, because again, that's that unconditional love. And who, when I said that, like, they were just not happy because they couldn't conceptualize Mm. exactly how that worked because that's not a procedure that is a systematic change that actually needs to happen from top down. So when I think about STEM, I really do think of these systems, right? We have different types of programs for math for students. Math is very much tracked. Science to a certain extent can be tracked, especially once you get to college. Well, then what's the system working there and how can we actually change and influence that? So when I walk into rooms, people are usually like, uh, Victoria, like, oh, she's here again. <laughs> you know, what she's gonna, what's she gonna talk to us about today, you know, with regard to STEM and systems and all this stuff. But, you know, when I think about how this does relate to my role as a queer educator, like I bring something unique to the table, one, given my background, and then two, just given my job, and three, who I am because STEM traditionally has not been a space or a moment or time or anything really uh, for people who are really not white men. Maybe there's a little sliver for white women, but for the most part, there's a lot of, especially in American curriculum, um, just moments for white men. There are a lot of STEMinists who are not white men, but white men do get centered. Um, So that's another piece of the puzzle too, because they're usually white, straight, There's a lot of different things going on there. Uh, So a lot of the work that I do with regard to just that systems thinking, right? Dismantling those systems. How can we center queer voices? How can we center black voices? How can we center indigenous voices? How can we center Latinx voices? 
all, all the voices that are not straight white men, <laughs> you know, what can we do in order to bring that to light? Because when we have students see themselves in these figures, then they feel like they can be empowered to take on that role as well. Yeah. And I, you know, I think it's important to point out as well. I think sometimes people think, oh, okay. So if that voice is centered, it's only for that person. And, you know, you know, again, when you're talking about anti-racism, anti-homophobia, anti-transphobia, we also know that mm-hmm. the more that we learn, right. the less hate crimes we see, um, you know, and, and for folks who genuinely have been misled, you know, as you pointed out, sometimes, you know, students hold views that they have gotten from places that they have just never been asked to rethink, or they have right. never been given a prism or a lens to see it differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for those students, it's helping them as well. Absolutely. Um, People don't know what they don't know, right? Even when I work with teachers for coaching cycles where, you know, if I visit for a lesson and if I see something that I feel like might need to be improved, of course, I never say it like that. It's always, hey, I saw this, like, I've got a couple of ideas, you know, let's make it happen. They don't know what they don't know. And sometimes they don't think about it from that kind of angle. And adults, administrators, students, we're all on the spectrum where we're in this continuous cycle of learning. And we really don't know what we don't know. So once we break down those barriers and we can talk about it more, then we get to learn, we get to be enlightened. And just like how you said, Trisha, like there's decrease in hate crimes, right? There's an increase in and collaboration, there's an increase in responsibility. We're not finger pointing anymore. We're trying to figure out who we are and and unconditionally loving who we are. And that's really important. Yeah, and just, you know, again, I'm thinking of colleagues I've had who would hear you use a phrase like unconditional love in the context of school and eyebrows might be raised and how, Again, it it shouldn't be an eyebrow raising right. comment yes. to think about schools being a place where all students are experiencing that. It's just uh, again a really powerful, I think, provocation mm-hmm. uh, or reflection at your school. Would that phrase feel seem right dramatically out of place? Right, and and also, what does it mean for students? You know, because I've been in situations with students in lots of different areas where, you know, they might be able to verbalize like a homophobic statement but they're not able to put homophobia like that label on there or you know they'll describe a microaggression like a racial microaggression but they're not able to put the label microaggression on it and it happens because they can very clearly vocalize what happened to them but they don't have the specific label for it because as kids they're not taught so some of the work you know i feel like i'm like the work that i'm doing but you know in my specific school site as well we're very very big on just laying it plain and saying look Like, we're not afraid to talk about race. We are not afraid to talk about homophobia. We are not afraid to talk about identity and how these intersectionalities, when when you don't come correct, (laughs) right, they can be very harmful for your peers, for your teachers, for your administrators. So we're going to have open dialogue about these things. So that way, when you are an adult, because right now you're a young adult, you go into the world equipped with the tools to be a thoughtful human being. And I just wish I saw more of that. Like, I feel like sometimes, especially in middle school, like the issues are skirted around. They, they might think that they're not old enough. I see it a lot in high school, of course, because they're about to enter college or career. But I mean, even as young as elementary school, I was in a meeting not too long ago where, you know, fifth graders, fourth graders, they were sharing their pronouns 
like, hi, I'm Emily and my pronouns are she, her, hers. And that was awesome. <laughs> you know, we need some more of that. So we can introduce that education early on. That way kids have the tools to equip with just defining who they are. Yeah, that that language and that confidence. And you're right, because I think, you know, often I'll speak to educators who they say, like, I never, you know, learned in a space where there was anything other than silence around these topics. So for me, there's a lot of discomfort. But when I come to my students, they don't have that same you know, my, I, I feel on edge about this. So I think it's also just realizing that for a lot of us, that's our background, but that's not necessarily what the reality has to be for our students. Absolutely. Uh, Victoria, when, when we chatted in way back in 2020, um, on the shifting schools webinar, you talked about helping students again, see their identity as something that should be valued, appreciated, nurtured. Uh, and you talked about, you know, helping students advocate for themselves, what has helped you learn to advocate for yourself? Because, you know, as we were talking about, you know, mm. schools now are starting to not shy away from conversations that they did at least when I was a student. So I'm wondering in terms of you learning to advocate for yourself, was that kind of a journey that you had to undertake all on your own? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, I have to give props to my parents. Um, you know, my, my mom and my dad are the huge advocates of advocating for yourself, so they're advocates of advocacy, mm-hmm. but they've also been very open and honest with me and, and my brothers, I have two younger brothers from a young age about just the importance of the only person that can really speak up for you is you. You know, if somebody is, you know, off to the side, then they can speak on what happened. You know, if somebody might be hanging out in the back then they can speak on what happened, but only you understand your lived experience and only you can really speak from that authentic voice. So to tell you a story, um, the reason why I'm so big on advocacy is when I was student teaching, and this was um, like 2015, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, 2015, because that's when I graduated from college. So this was spring semester student teaching at a cooperating teacher, mentor teacher, whatever you want to call it, who was just terrible. I mean, she, she all lives mattered me in the middle of teaching one day for absolutely no reason. Uh, the reason why I'm Victoria the Tech on Twitter is actually because huh, she told me that tech is a devil's game. That is what she said. She said that technology is a devil's game and that I need to stop bringing my laptop into her classroom because it is distracting me and distracting her. She barely knew how to turn on a computer or use anything technology related. Um, so she was a bit of, a, of an old soul, you know, when it came to teaching. But that was, I think, a moment for me where we started out kind of okay in the beginning, but then she figured out more about me, who I was, you know, what my goals were. And it was like a switch flipped. And literally within the course of, I would say about two weeks, we went from friendly, right? Like not friends, but friendly as a working relationship to her just decimating me mm. on, on a lot of different areas. And that was a moment where I had to say, okay, even though this is not an ideal situation, this woman is literally holding the fate of my career in her hands. So I either speak up or I fall back and I play by her rules. And that was a reckoning moment for me where I had to figure out whether or not I wanted to just kind of sit along and play the game or if I wanted to advocate and speak up for myself. And I kept thinking continuously, is this a place where you would wanna work, right? Like, if, like, would you feel comfortable coming in being a teacher here? And if your answer is yes, would you feel comfortable working for the district? Well, of course my answers were no for both things. So then I started going up the chain with my direct supervisor 
you know, because you have like a supervisor that's part that's she's like a neutral party, right? Like part of the college. Well, she didn't stick up for me. So then I had to go again, right? Like, thankfully, I was very close with a lot of people that were at the college because of things I had done at the school. Um, I went up again. She stood up for me. Um, and that was one of the first moments I feel like I felt true allyship from a white person. And then we, and then she and I went up the chain to the Dean of Students who, again, she and I are also still very tight. Um, and she also stood up for me. And again, that was another moment of true allyship from a white person. So the three of us as a coalition, were kind of trying to tackle and figure out exactly what was going on. Um, and from what I heard from my other friends that were also student teaching, is that, you know, well, sometimes you get put with like a bad mentor and you just kind of suck it up and you deal with it. But for me, I just can't do that. That's not something I can do. And I've always been, again, an advocate. But when when you're messing with my career, right, when you're messing with my future and when you're messing with my goals, that's not something that I that I deal with. And then and kind of taking that situation and superimposing it onto other stuff that I do. I mean, I feel like everything that we do is our life, right? It's our family, it's our career goals, it's our personal goals. So when I work with students and I work with other teachers, that's why advocacy is so important because you, you never know what's going to happen, right? You never know who's going to stand up for yourself. And if it's not going to be you, then who is it going to be? And it's not that, you know, I don't trust people because I totally do. And I got lots of folks who will stand up, but it's authentic when it comes from my voice, right? Victoria Thompson can only speak for Victoria Thompson. You know, I would love if other folks did too. And, and, and a lot of folks do, but I think it's important for us to be able to stand up for ourselves because we never know what's going to happen. Yeah. And it's interesting in that story too, just the number of bystanders that are there. And I'm thinking, mm -hmm. you know, specifically how many bystanders are there in an educational context is like soul destroying. Because again, if we're not learning to be upstanders in school, if that's not the principle that we are bringing into our job, where can we have hope for that? And it does make me think about, you know, we've, we've mentioned the word collaboration a whole bunch of times already in this, in this conversation, collaboration for what? Like right. schools who say, I am teaching students to be critical thinkers, to learn how to collaborate mm -hmm. for what, for what, for what? And just, you know, I wonder, you know, your, your story and your experience with looking around, Hey, is somebody going to support me in this or how many people are going to look the other way? Mm -hmm. um, and that's a systems thing too, yeah. right? So like, if you've got a cooperating teacher, or even if you have a colleague or, you know, just somebody who isn't speaking up, that to me brings in larger questions about the school culture and climate. And then also, you know, because that, that would just happen between us as adults. I saw a lot of silencing of student voice. Um, I saw a lot of silencing with families and parents. I saw a lot of favoritism. I saw a lot of just you know cherry picking of different goals and ideals. And I also feel like I saw a lot of just a culture of fear where it was, you know, it, it, it was considered to be a good school. And if, and if you're listening, I'm doing like air quotes right now. Um, I say that it's good because it was a school that was made up of primarily white students. You know, the scores across the board were really flat line average, but it was upheld as a good school because it was located on an island and it had lots of, you know, white parents and white folks that were there. So a lot of people wanted for their kids to go to that school. But and, and, and admittedly, again, I'm not a parent, 
But if I were to observe there for a day, I don't know if I would want for my kid to go to that school. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if I would want them to be in a space where my kid cannot be themselves. I don't know if I would want for them to be in a space where my kid, you know, is silenced actively in class. I just don't know if I would want for my kid to be there. Um, and, and that, again, gets kind of messed up in this system's thinking because people were so caught up with the fact that this is a good school that they didn't look into the actual practices that the teachers were doing and also into like the little implicit codes that the kids were learning. Like I went to a second grade classroom at one point and they were the quietest second graders I, I've ever had. They, they whispered, they didn't talk. And I found out that it was a teacher rule that they could not speak. They could not speak unless they had done like a laundry list of 15 things and then they had to raise their hand and then only when the teacher acknowledged them were they able to speak and that was a whisper. And sometimes the teacher didn't even want to get to the kids because then they'd have to talk. Like she just wanted a completely silent classroom. I wouldn't want my kid there. I wouldn't want my dog there. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. And, 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 and people don't look past it. People just don't look past it. Well, and I think it's, you know, is it, a, is it a good school for, for learners learning to play the game of school mm -hmm. in that isolated mm -hmm. space? Is it, or, you know, versus, is it a good school where we are genuinely preparing citizens for the broader right. society? Um, you know, and, and all schools get to choose which, right. which good are you shooting for? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and it's interesting because you do so many different, you know, PD offerings, panels, podcasts, um, you know, you're definitely someone who I think has great broad reach. And with that, you know, hopefully I'm, I'm making a guess that you, you, you get a, a nice perspective into, you know, what schools mm -hmm. are prioritizing and, and right, maybe yeah. just some different themes and threads. And as you mentioned earlier, you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if there are folks who are thinking about PD goals, for next year, maybe, and you're thinking about, you know, the range of different things that you've been able to offer. What is something that you wish more schools reached out to you and said, hey, you know, get in touch. Did you know that you can actually do some PD around this um, and that you'd love to see it just becoming a little bit um, of a more popular, more known option? Yeah. Can I give three? I yeah, actually... yeah, absolutely. So my first one, and again, I'm a little bit biased, because this is my role, but instructional coaching. So when I was back in South Carolina, we had an instructional coach and she was great. You know, when I was in, then moved to Washington and we had kind of like a math coach. And then now I'm a coach myself and I'm just learning so much about how great it is to have a go-between kind of like leader teacher who doesn't necessarily teach classes, but they just coach teachers on how to get better at their craft. Um, with all due respect to administrators, I know that y'all can't do everything at once. And that is really hard, you know, to kind of go through those evaluative cycles without being on the ground running with the teachers all the time. So with what I do as a coach is, you know, teachers kind of use me as a go-between. They might have an evaluative cycle coming up and they're, they want to run a lesson through me. We'll co-teach. I'll train them on tech tools. You know, we go over different coaching cycles. I have standing meetings with teachers every week. Uh, where we just kind of go over and we talk about how the week went. Sometimes I'm a listening ear, sometimes I'm more helpful. <laughs> you know, it really is up to what the teacher wants to do. And, um, you know, depending on the district or the school site or whatever that you're in, I know in my particular area, we do invest in coaching. So it's a separate job that's different from a teacher. But I would, um, you know, just advise any school ever, you know, invest in instructional coaching. 
interesting and have it be good instructional coaching too. So not just have like a lead teacher that has like an office hours once a month, have it be a legitimate position or a legitimate cycle where you sit down with your teachers and you say, okay, I visited your classroom during this time. Here's what I saw. And I call it glows and grows. So like the glows are like, you're rocking. This was great. I loved it. The grows are, okay, here are some things that, you know, have you tried to use Pear Deck before? Um, you know, have you tried a breakout room? Let's try it out. And then we can work on it together. I don't see nearly enough spaces investing in quality instructional coaching. So that is something that I would like to see more of because I think it just helps the school as a whole. Um, the second thing that I'd like to see for sure is definitely more student-led groups, uh, specifically with just affinity groups and identity groups. Spaces, again, for students to be their authentic selves. I'm seeing that more again in high school and maybe upper middle, but really like elementary kids are ready for these types of conversations. Mm -hmm. And even if you don't wanna go full throttle, you can still have conversations about identity. You can have conversations about sexuality. Um, I was in a classroom not too long ago where they were having a conversation about a, you know, identity and how do you identify? And it didn't necessarily need to be about race, gender, any of that stuff, but they were identifying based off of who they felt as human. So, you know, we did have kids say like, I'm a Chicana, or we did have kids say, you know, I'm an ice cream lover, you, you know, just something. <laughs> My dog is growling. <laughs> Your dog um, but, you know, has something against ice cream. <laughs> yes, I know. I'm like, you, you never growl, bud. What's going on? Maybe growls like twice a year. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things where kids are ready for conversations. And so like at a couple of different school sites, there are ways to do it. Um, I highly suggest having somebody come in and train the adults first. Because again, this is a you don't know what you don't know. And it's really good to have the adults well equipped to lead these conversations before they're just thrust in a room with like, you know, 27 graders and they're all talking about identity. And I think that that's another piece of the puzzle too that we have to remember as adults is like, you know, obviously you and I are very well versed on these kinds of things, but I've worked in spaces where they asked me, okay, Victoria, what's POC? And I'm scratching my head like people of Co right, right, right. Like, you know, like, are we on the same planet right now? POC means people of color, but there are some folks who genuinely do not know. And we don't want to cause unintentional harm to our students by putting them in a situation with somebody who might be ignorant to these kinds of things. Uh, so that would be number two. And then the third, I would definitely say, and again, this is my bias with my role, just investment in educational technology that's excessive and inclusive. Um, so by excessive or not excessive, accessible, so I'll start over, investing in educational technology that is accessible and inclusive. Um, accessible meaning that it's not just your standard rodeo, it's got voice to text, it's got alt text on pictures, you know, just these things that I feel like we've come to think of as standard as, as modern folks, but for our students, they might not necessarily know how to utilize the technology to the best of our, or best of their rather ability. And then if we also think about the inclusive piece, right? Do all of my students know how to use technology? Uh, do all of my students have internet? Do I, as the teacher, know how to use the technology? Does the administrator know how to use it? Because then when we have the, these technology tools, we can scaffold and create lessons that are great. And they incorporate all these different perspectives. Um, and they also have authentic voice, but we can't do that unless we figure out how to use the tools first. Uh, so I do a lot of work with that too, just like, hey, so you, you know, your district bought this tool, but nobody's used it yet. <laughs> you know, tell me why mm -hmm. you haven't used it in six months and you've got this fancy district license. 
oh, you never received training? Okay, let's talk about that. <laughs> yeah, so that's, I would say those are my three. Those are three great recommendations. And, you know, again, I, I'm guessing and I'm mentioning here, if you're wondering, you want to learn more about that or you'd like to reach out for a consultation of what that would look like, people can come to you yeah, for that. Um, and, you know, they can come to you for so much because you, you know, again, you, you're on panels all the time. You're at loads of conferences. You are constantly, you know, in conversation with other educators. And, you know, one thing that I think has always been important for me as an educator is that I also have to be in conversation with myself and asking myself right. just those reflective questions, because I think, you know, we all do have a role to play in terms of shaping the way that students see social justice. You know, as you were saying, no matter what you teach, there's an element that you teach that is going to be talking about identity, power, privilege, no matter what the subject is. So can you think of any questions that you think more question, more educators need to spend some reflective time on? Um, you know, I think in order to just make the most out of that opportunity, and, and truly, I, I do think it's an opportunity and an honor to be able to help students learn about the difference that they can make in their communities and society at large. Mm -hmm. I always go to my first question, which is what's my why? Why am I here? Why am I here to do this type of work? Why am I doing what I'm doing, right? The, the, like what's your why has a lot of different things. But for me in particular, I like to ground myself in my work and exactly why I'm here doing what I'm doing right now. And that's a hard question for a lot of educators, especially in the midst of a pandemic, um, you know, when times are tough, maybe you've had a really tough day. I've definitely had moments where I'm just like, I just want to eat ice cream and, and sleep. <laughs> you know, I don't want to think about my why. I don't want to think about work. I just need to take like a sensory break. And I think that that's also okay. But, uh, but then coming back to figure out why you're there is important. And I don't think that folks ask themselves that enough. Because when you start to actually get into your why, then you can figure out whether, again, it's a good workplace for you. You can figure out whether or not it's a workplace where you can be your authentic self. Then you can begin to ask questions to students, right? Like, what's your why? And that looks a little bit different for them. You know, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, what, what are you thinking? But then they can also ground themselves in that why. Just what's your why? You know, there's a lot of different ways that you can take it, but that's a question I find myself asking myself constantly. And then also asking my staff, you know, just figuring out, grounding ourselves in the work that we do. Another thing that I don't think that folks do enough and just kind of think about is just when was the last time I was conscious of X? So like X can stand for anything. You know, when was the last time that I was conscious of or made aware of, you know, my race, of my gender, of my sexuality, um, of my identity? Just like think of, thinking critically about who we are as people. Like when was the last time we were made aware of, of who we are? So to give an example, I mean, it's, it's no surprise to anybody. My wife and I are huge Disney Parks fans. And we were just there for Valentine's Day. And, you know, we're getting on Space Mountain. And there was a child um, who was part of a Black family. And my wife and I are Black. And he pointed to me and my wife and goes, and he goes, oh, look, Mom, there's another Black family here. Isn't that so cool? And that's just not something I think about. Like, like I'm conscious of my race, but when I'm in a theme park, I'm usually just like trying to ride rides and eat giant turkey legs. And, you know, that was a moment where I was made conscious of my identity um, because somebody pointed it out to me. Now, if you ask people that 
you know, like just those types of questions, they're going to get different, of course, answers. But I think that that also puts into perspective of when are we conscious, when are we not? And then how can we make it so that way we're always in a state of consciousness? Because that's where our kids are, right? They're always conscious, they're always absorbing, they're always thinking. So how can we make it so that way we as adults are conscious of identity, right? Um, race, sexuality, all the time. Because we don't have the option to opt out, right? As queer educators, we just don't have that option to not think about it. We need everybody to get to the space where they can think about it. And that comes from being in a conscious space. Yeah, that's really powerful. And, you know, again, I think folks who think, oh, well, my identity does not make a difference in school. I've heard people say that. And it's like, of course, those two right. things are wound so tightly, you know, even just, you know, the, the way that you have come to know what school or education is, you know, that's been mm. a very personal experience for everybody working in education. And, and I would say, you know, a lot of those, that harmful practice earlier that you mentioned of the woman who said, you know, like my classroom rule is this is just a silent space. Mm-hmm. That was probably something that she experienced, right. um, you know, and, and again, just I think having to to question that, what am I bringing into my classroom that is, it's coming, yeah, it's coming right, through yeah. my, my prism and my lens. And, you know, of mm-hmm. course it is. And th- that's a conversation. It's so interesting, Victoria, you know, that idea of why am I here? I'm thinking back to different schools I've worked at and how many of my colleagues would I be able to say, I know why you are here, or I know why right. you got in education in the first place. Um, it would be great if that were a conversation or a question that became a little bit more normalized on, on various yeah. school campuses. I think I maybe can count on one hand, you know, folks I've met in education in previous places I've worked at. At my current workplace, it's a little bit different. I feel like we're all very conscious of our whys, but I might be able to name three or four where I can explicitly state why they're there. Everybody else, it's, it's honestly a bit of a toss up. And I wish I knew but I honestly don't even know if they knew, right? So that's kind of, you don't know what you don't know because they're not asking themselves that. Hmm. Well, and with that, you know, I'm just also, you really provoked me to think about the other frame that maybe needs to just be more, you know, normalized in life period is just saying, I don't know. Right, yeah. It's okay to say, I don't know the answer to that. Let me think about that and I'll come back to you. That is totally fine. And I think that sometimes, especially in education, we get so caught up in the answer now. You know, we need an answer right now. Get back to me right now. It's that sense of urgency where that's really rooted in like individualist thought and paternalism and honestly, just not a lot of stuff that's great. So taking the time to really be reflective before you answer somebody. I have a rule where if I, even if I receive an email, well, I have two rules. My first is that I don't have more than four tabs open at a time. (laughs) So that way I stay conscious because otherwise it just gets too chaotic on my screen. And I like to, again, ground myself in in the work that I'm doing. I know that if I have more than four, then it just gets too ridiculous. But the second is um, just kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier. When we think about having these types of conversations and giving that pause in that wait time, I always have like a 15 minute wait. So I will sit. I will digest, I will take a look, and then I will give myself some responding time. So that way I can go back and think, okay, well, this is my reaction now. <laughs> Let me see what it's like in about 15 minutes so I can give a full picture for folks. 
That's brilliant. Again, not just good advice for folks working in schools, but I think that's great life advice. Uh, Victoria Thompson, thank you so much for, again, spending time and and sharing, um, you know, just a fraction of your incredible wisdom in the show notes. uh, People can find all the other ways to go and learn learn from Victoria Thompson. And if you're headed to NCCE, um, that's the session. Make sure that you are booked in and registered to go see that. Um, thank you so much. I really do appreciate your time. Thank you. If you enjoyed learning with Victoria Thompson today, uh, just remember you can also bring her into your school. She is a consultant as well. So in the show notes, you can find out more information about that. Lastly, we've got an update from former guest and nonprofit organization, Pride and Less Prejudice. Hi, my name is Lisa Foreman and I'm the founder of Pride and Less Prejudice, Our mission is to promote positive LGBTQ plus representation by providing free age appropriate LGBTQ plus books to pre-K through third grade classrooms in the United States and Canada. Since we began in November of 2019, we are so happy to say that we have raised over $20,000 and sent over 1200 books. Currently, we are receiving over a hundred requests for free books from teachers every month. So in order for us to keep up with the demand, we continue to create educational opportunities that will also help us raise some money. We are super, super excited that on Saturday, March 20th at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we are hosting See Yourself, Be Yourself, a celebrity panel on LGBTQ media representation. The panel features LGBTQ activists Nicole Maines from Supergirl and Bit, Daryl Stevens from Noah's Ark and Be Positive, Theo Germain from The Politician and Work in Progress, and Andrew Keenan Bulger from Newsies. And it'll be moderated by Ebony Bell, the owner and editor in chief of Tag Magazine. This will be a 60 minute moderated panel discussion, followed by a 30 minute question and answer. Tickets start at $20 and all the proceeds will be used to provide free age-appropriate LGBTQ-inclusive books to classrooms from pre-K to third grade throughout the United States and Canada. You can register for the event at www.prideandlessprejudice.org slash event dash registration. Can't wait to have you be part of the conversation. See you soon.